listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left, the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey guys, this is Aaron Fishman. It's interview time, and we have a very special focus this week, namely the Portland Trailblazers. They're the talk of the league, and for good reason, having won 15 of their last 18, while showcasing an explosive offense and a stout defense. Portland writer Dane Carbaugh stops by to explain how exactly the Blazers are doing it. Dane is a superb video analyst for Vox, Blazer's Edge, Hardwood Paroxysm, and Flow Hoops. He also co-hosts his very own podcast called Between Me and You. As an impressionable young 11-year-old, Dane got to attend his first NBA game. Sitting in the fourth row, getting to watch scoring leader at the time, Allen Iverson, live at the Rose Garden, it was just phenomenal. But the special treat for Dane was getting yelled at by Detroit bad boy Rick Mahorn, whom he did not recognize at the time. As Dane tells it, this giant dude looks up at me, and we lock eyes. Finally, he looks at me with more anger than should be directed to an 11-year-old boy, and yells, what? You can't talk? Let's get weird. Let's bring Dane on. How's it going, Dane? Thanks for joining us. Going pretty good. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Appreciate it. It's our pleasure. It's exciting for all of us to talk about the Blazers. It's just a, a really great time for them this season. The team's resilience has been striking. Before we bring you in, I just want to set the context a little bit. They were 15 and 24 and trailing late to the Oklahoma City Thunder when Damian Lillard just did Damian Lillard things, scored like 17 points in the final three minutes to get the comeback victory. And ever since then, that was January 10th, the Blazers have won 15 of their last 18 since losing to the Warriors by 20 a couple of days before that. And there's so many other examples of their resilience this season. They were 4-9 and nine and in the midst of a seven-game losing streak when they beat the Clippers. Also, Lillard heroics were to thank for that. And then even without Damian Lillard, they were 11-20, and 20, had lost six in a row, and they found a way to, to beat Cleveland by 30. How resilient is this team? I mean, exceptionally resilient, just because of the fact of, of Damian is the undisputed leader of this team now. He doesn't have to worry about LaMarcus Aldridge and whether or not he's going to you know, decline a, a TV commercial and then want to be back in it once Damian Lillard decides he wants to be in it and you know all the weird things that he decided to do while they were uh, here in Portland together. So um, that, that also lends itself to the, the characters that are on the team. The interesting thing that I think I've talked about with some folks uh, here is that ever since I would say probably probably since Roy came to Portland, but Portland has put together a likable team, if not league-wide, but at least for their fans, no matter their performance. All their performances obviously been quite good in uh, years since Roy was drafted. So, and that's that's an interesting function, not only um, for fans, but also for how this team interacts with each other on the court, their familiarity, and um, now that Damien's the leader, they know that not only do they have a very good player as their leader, but they're all comfortable with each other, I think that really inspired them to push forward. Uh, really, since that that Cleveland game, that Cleveland game feels like 
when I'm looking at and thinking back what was going on at that time, you know, obviously the story there is that Cleveland just gave up on David Blatt, but they saw that they could blow a good team out, and then they took a couple L's directly after that. And I don't think they, I think they decided that, that wasn't how they wanted to finish the season, especially since they're teetering right on the cusp around that time, either uh, the eight or nine seed. Um, and now they've really, they've really done a good job. So good for them. You called Damian Lillard the undisputed leader on this team. He's just been on a tear lately. He had 51 points and a huge win over the Warriors last week. He's had five straight 30-point games, making him the first player since Jeff Petrie to put up those kind of numbers. How has he been so dominant, at least offensively, in the recent games? I think you have a couple things in play. One, whether he said it or not, I think he was trying to shy away from it, but He's never happy if he doesn't make the All-Star game. Obviously, last year, that was a big thing. He went on a tear after he he was very upset about it when he got added in. But um, I think that Terry Stotts has arranged the offense in a very interesting way to make up for the shots that are left from certain areas of the court. Talking about the absence of Lamar Saldridge. And a good example of that would be, they used to run this play called uh, Thumb punch, which is essentially, it's a handoff play, it switches to the wing, and then it's just a kick back down after a, a pin down from a player coming up to the wing, and that player then just kicks it back down to Aldridge, and then goes to look in the left block. Now, they're, they're running a variation of that this year, where instead of going to that side of the floor, they flip it to the other side of the floor, the post comes up, and then it's kicked down to a player um, catching a flare screen, and it's a that play ends up being a post up for a guard or I guess a wing. So you still have actions taking place in the same part of the floor and shots and defenses having to adapt to the same part of the floor. And that means that Damian Lillard is still open in the parts of the floor that he was last year. And now you have him playing more minutes with CJ. Um, you have Alan Crabb basically playing out of his mind, playing his way into a uh, probably a $12 million or more year contract next summer. So I think that it's really a team effort and it's a continuation of Damian's progression mixed with how good of a coach Terry Stotts is. He's really done an exceptional job. You mentioned this in your answer. This is the second year in a row that Damian Lillard has been snubbed from the All-Star team. This seems to be a recurring theme in his life story, actually. He was one of the last players cut from the 2014 FIBA team. Even out of high school, he didn't get a lot of recruitment from college. But do you think he gets motivation from that and uses that as drive and fuel to continually improve his game. Yeah, I think there's two parts of that. One is that, that you're totally right. That is definitely a part of his process and his, what, what has happened to him either by chance or by by his own choice. You know, uh, an interesting story came out about that around the All-Star game where, you know, he was slated to be on a, he, he had an offer which started breaking out to be on a different AAU team after his sophomore year, I think. And um, it was different from the team that he had been on the first couple of years. And so he basically said that he the, the second team that offered to be on was Oakland's premier team, is where all these great players came from. And the other team he was on was, you know, sort of the, the, the Mighty Ducks, the Rejects, the Tryhards. And so he decided not to leave because he's that kind of a loyal guy. He said, no, now that I'm good, now you want me, but you didn't want me before. So I think that's sort of what's going on this year, is that he has that loyalty factor into it and you know, wants to put on for the city. Want, you know, 
he got MVP chance <laughs> while he was at the free throw line the other day, and he said that it felt like they were saying that you know Portland politics is he's he's their MVP that kind of stuff. So um, I, think, I think I think it's twofold, but yeah. Speaking of underdogs, Dame's backcourt mate CJ McCollum has emerged as a rising star, and in my mind, the clear-cut most improved player this season. He's been such a pleasure to watch. And off the court, he's such a pillar of the Portland community and just a tremendous role model for young people. He writes for the Players' Tribune and recently started a journalism scholarship fund. How vital has CJ been to the team's success and morale this season? Yeah, you know, he also hosts a, a local radio show, so he's kind of doing it all. He's been obviously crucial to the offensive success. They're one of the top scoring backcourt duos in the NBA. The great thing about CJ when you talk about the Most Improved Player Award is that he took what was good, both per 36 numbers and per 100 possession numbers from his first couple of years in the league and adapted them into starters minutes. And not just having additional minutes, which means obviously, you know, increased, uh, you know, play more minutes, get more tired, that kind of stuff, but also playing with players in the court, different rotations. He's really adapted to the fact that he now has a, a different role when he starts versus when Damien goes out. And I really, I really like that about him. I'm not, I'm not super convinced he's the most improved player. I think my vote is still probably going to go to Will Barton, just because of um, he's really adapted his advanced, like when you look at his advanced stats from earlier in his career, and after just watching him here in Portland and what he's doing in Denver, particularly as a shooter, as a, a much better ball handler, much better decision maker. I really like Will Barton, but obviously CJ is uh, vital in his. His ability to adapt to playing starters minutes and playing with different players is, I mean, it's great. Uh, good Neil O'Shea has loved CJ for years, one of his gems, and uh, good for him for not giving up on him and good for CJ for basically killing it. Only one starter remains from last season. They lost the star in the Marcus Aldridge, and pretty much everyone expected the Blazers to be in rebuilding mode, but... That has not happened. Incredible scoring and balance after Lillard and McCollum. How has the front office, the coaching staff, and the players been able to keep Portland competitive and weird for that matter? Yeah, you know, they're definitely weird because you talk about replacing somebody like Robin Lopez, who, good passer, good rebounder, good, uh, you know, intangibles guy. We're talking about things like when Damian Lillard drives last year, uh, he's sealing off other dudes so they can't come across the lane to help. Little things you don't notice in box scores or even, you know, they're not in play actions when you look at them on NBA.com, any of that kind of stuff. Then you switch over to Mason Plumley, who does a lot of things right, but isn't the same kind of defender. But he's also one of the best passing centers in the NBA. I mean, you look at a lot of the guys on the Blazers roster and, and you look at a lot of their stats, the, one of the guys after Damien and CJ, the guy who gives guys the most assists is usually Mason Plumley. So, you know, I think in terms of what the front office did, Neil has been getting bargains anywhere he can. We saw that at the last, this last trade deadline where he essentially, uh, spent money that he needed to spend anyways to get to the salary floor by, uh, acting as a trade destination for Anderson Verjao, building that salary, and then ended up getting a first round pick out of that deal, although it's protected. And then I think he, he, he swapped second rounders. So he, he did a good job. With that, and that's sort of where he's been looking. The same thing, the same thing with when he signed Alfred Camino this last summer was where he ended up. He knew that he maybe necessarily wasn't going to get some of the the big, huge name free agents, and ended up getting Alfred Camino at a very good deal, locking him for multiple years. Which is going to look if he continues to get better, 
he's only 25, uh, that deal's going to look really great under the new salary cap in, in years to come. So I think he's he's finding deals, and he's done a great job. You know, there was talk about, well, not I don't know if it's serious talk, but at least publicly in terms of uh, for Blazers uh, fans and, and media about maybe getting rid of Terry Stotts, which is absolutely insane. And so good for uh, Neil for not only finding the value that he can. I think Paul Allen picked the right guy with Neil, and then also Neil has stayed with Terry Stotts this whole time. And obviously, uh, you know, it, it's it's really panned out. The Blazers have been unlucky, I think, historically, and people think about their injury issues. But grabbing Damian, having CJ pan out, having Alan Crabb pan out, whether or not he stays in Portland or not, you know, even the development of Myers Leonard as a three-point shooter last year, which adds to maybe his trade value or his continued value as a Blazer if he, you know, they end up resetting him. You know, a lot of those things are positive things, and, and uh, an organization that's going in the right direction. And uh, it's paying off for them. And it's paying off for them better than anyone would have thought. Let's be honest about that. So Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you talked more about their depth and their balance. I think another thing that would be really surprising to people is after losing four of their five starters, they're four and three without Damian Lillard. So that's cool to see, even though I know it's a small sample size. And since that 20-point loss to the Warriors that I alluded to earlier on January 8th, their offense has been electric. During that stretch, they're fourth in offensive efficiency behind the Warriors, the Spurs, and the Raptors. I think that pretty much says it all. Can you just illuminate a little bit more on just how their offense is moving so well as a unit? I think you have a couple things in play. One, the new players have figured out how to work themselves into the system and what they like together. You know, so if you're if you're a, a new player like Mason Plumley. That's tough for Damian Lillard because guys are coming at you from different angles across the paint because he's maybe sealing them off in different areas. Or he's put in different areas of the floor because of how Terry Stotts has altered the sets. So where the five is, five is in a different spot now than where it was last year at Robin Lopez. So that's hard for Damian Lillard, right? And then you're talking about Mason Plumey, who's a, as a, for him, who's a very good passer. Now he's playing with, you know, an entirely new team. Now, so he's trying to figure out, okay, where does, if this guy cuts here, which I know is part of the set, where does he like it? If should I pass to his right hand or his left hand? Is he not going to be able to catch it because he doesn't have good hands? Where does he like to step out? Does he V cut around screens or does he fade on screens? Which one is he going to do? So now they've had some time to sort of figure it out. That's, uh, and sort of incorporate those new players. That's a big part of it. The other part of it is you have players that have been in the system. Damian, CJ, Alan Crabb, Myers Leonard. All those guys have been in the same system. They know Terry Stotts' offense in and out. The Blazers have been a good team under Terry, at least on the offensive side of the ball. And, you know, we have continued development of those players as individuals. And you mix in the fact that those new players are now comfortable. It makes sense that they're able to put it together. And, like I talked about earlier, Terry Stotts has done a great job taking away some of the portions that he doesn't have of his offense that he doesn't have the personnel for, and then adding in new wrinkles and twists. So those are the things that have really sort of catapulted their their season as, as they, they move into, into the second, second half. half. This is seemingly a team full of guys who know their roles. You mentioned Alan Crabb before, who's playing really well and surely going to earn himself a, a nice contract in the offseason. His minutes have nearly doubled. His points have more than tripled. He's defending, and, and he's able to score from the perimeter. Gerald Henderson's a guy that started virtually his entire career and appears to be embracing a role off the bench. You said um, Mason Plumley, he's really been passing the ball. 
he's tripled his assist rate and his minutes haven't even gone that much up. Alfaruk Aminu, great defender and rebounder. Talk about those guys just knowing their roles and, and tell us a little bit more about Alan Crabb. I'm interested to hear how he's improved so much with the increased minutes. I think Alan Crabb is a guy who works really hard. That's what I'm not in. I'm not in the gym with them at practices, but obviously I have uh, friends who cover the team as their full-time job. And they tell me that Alan Crabb works his butt off. And that is, that's been apparent since, you know, there's stories of him. He, he walked to practice, you know, from, from Tualatin when he was living in Tualatin to, uh, uh, in his, his rookie year. And he, he's, he's all about it. So I think he's, he has tools that are built to succeed, right? He's six foot four. He's not the tallest guy, but he has, um, in terms of who was drafted last season, he has a, uh, or just as an example, between uh, NBA shooting guards, you know, his wingspan is in the 90th percentile. He has a six foot eleven wingspan. He loves to jump passing lanes. That means it's hard to block his shot. He's, uh, you know, he he's, he really knows how to get around those screens. And that's the kind of player he was, you know, when he was at Cal. Because I'm a Pac-12 guy. Uh, when he was at Cal, you know, I noticed that that was sort of something that I thought was um, a good part of his game. That I was kind of surprised was lacking when he came to Portland, and now that he's really embraced that role and honestly found more minutes. I mean, it's hard. To, it's, it's going to be hard for Alan Crabb to find minutes behind Wes Matthews and Nick Batum. Let's let's be honest, because those guys are more dynamic in different ways at that point in their career. Now he has room to grow. And, you know, all, all these guys have a good sense of where they are supposed to be, not only on the floor, but also what their role is. Right? Okay, I'm the guy that does this, and he's the guy that does that. So... I really like that. Alan Crabb has really upped his game and it's going to be really valuable. I would hope that they hold on to him. He's not going to be a, a max level player or anything. So I think pretty much anything over, over the $10 million range is just fine. They have enough, uh, they have enough cap room moving forward. I, I don't have any qualms about that. Uh, in terms of Gerald Henderson, you know, he really got healthy after he had a, a hip uh, injury earlier in the season. And so now he's coming on and playing. I actually lived in Charlotte uh, last year, so you know saw him play for a significant amount of minutes, and you know, I, I like him. I think he fits right in not only from a perspective of what he can he can bring. He has a little bit of that ability to take those post up guard shots away that, uh, that West Matthews provided in years prior, but also you know he's a shooter. He can he's an additional penetrator from a wing position. Just nice because Alan Crabb isn't necessarily that good at running a, around a pick and roll so far, but. Uh, and, you know, he's just a, a, a veteran leadership presence. He's a, everything, you know, he's, he's, he's a, a con, consummate professional. He's a happy guy. He, you know, he knows his role. That's, that's the perfect kind of guy to slot into this team. Chemistry is a huge, huge deal for Portland. You said a lot of interesting things there. One of my takeaways was you and Gerald Henderson are BFFs. You're just yeah. following each other ball. around the country. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, just, just bald dudes living in Portland. That's, that's what that's up. <laughs> living the dream. Yeah, living the dream. That sounds good. I'm thinking that three of these four teams are probably going to make the playoffs in the West, Dallas, Portland, Utah, and Houston. I know a lot of those teams are really difficult to predict. Dallas is seemingly overachieving at least what people thought from before the year. Maybe not, but um, Houston clearly underachieving. Utah is a young team that I think a lot of people expected to be about where they are. Mm-hmm. What in your mind does Portland have to do to best position itself to avoid being the team on the outside looking in? You know, I said this from the beginning of the season, is that they have a very tough, 
tough end of the year. They have one of the hardest strengths of schedules. I can't remember what it is, but they have one of the hardest strengths of schedules to close out the season. And so that was always going to be their biggest, their biggest challenge. I, I, I didn't expect them to be this good, and I thought they might peak a little bit earlier, like in January. Obviously, they, they absolutely destroyed through the end of January and all the way through February here. But, uh, you know, they have, they have some openings in the Western Conference. Memphis is about Mark Gasol for the entire season. Dallas is overachieving. Sacramento, while fighting for that eight seed, is a total uh, disaster of an organization. Um, and, and Houston, you know, uh, uh, sh- is, the, is that breakup, uh, you know, worse than everybody expected? Or, or is it a breakup? Is it better than everybody expected? It's not a breakup. Who knows what that is? That usually means there's some, some truth to some of the stories in every single direction. The, the team that's interesting to me about, about that is Utah, because Utah's whole problem this whole season has been getting Gordon, Gordon Hayward to play at uh, the level of the salary. Now, he started to come on. He had kind of a ridiculous sat line the other day where he, you know, had more than 20 points, I think, on six, six made field goals or something. So if Utah can kind of come on, I think Portland has to worry about those three teams. And if, if Memphis completely falls out of it, I think Portland just needs to do what they're doing. A big thing for them would be staying healthy. That's, you know, because Damien has a, a planter issue. He's been sort of making sure that he doesn't aggravate all season long, that kind of stuff. Because as uh, as good as Portland is and as, as deep as they play, they're not necessarily ready to slot any of those guys up in in minutes higher than where they currently are. So um, I think they're in, they're in a good position because the West is obviously is not as good as years past. They have a complete opening to see the Grizzlies drop out. So they have an opening, and I, I think that they're going to have to just keep doing what they're doing. Uh, if, if they can stay healthy and keep doing what they're doing, there's, there was already an opening for them this year in the West. It was a perfect year for them to come on the way that they did. And, uh, if they can hold on it and Memphis keeps, keeps dropping lower. There it is. Playoffs. Just a quick aside. They played Dallas twice in a row, three days apart in, in late March, which is interesting too. Hmm. Yeah. That'll be, uh, I, I don't know. Dallas, to be honest. They're so weird. <laughs> it, it is strange. Also, I wanted to add that there's a three-week stretch in March that looks really tough on paper where they play the Clippers, yeah. Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Golden State. So I think that could make or break Portland. Yeah. yeah. Should Portland qualify for the playoffs, do you expect the team to stand any semblance of a chance against the Warriors or Spurs? in the opening round, or, or even the Thunder or the Clippers if they get the 60? And would it even matter, or would they just be happy getting there? I mean, one of the Warriors' five losses is from the Blazers. No, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just I'm kidding. kidding. Uh, <laughs> I don't know your argument, but that's true. I'm just kidding. Uh, the, I said this the other day when I was, I was thinking about that exact question, and the way that I see it for Portland is they're the weirdest team because you're not taking them against any of the, probably against any of the top three teams, but if they were a four seed, you'd take them to play any of the bottom, which is, I know that's sort of a a given, but in terms of if they were just switched and the Clippers were still the Clippers and the Blazers were still the Blazers, but somehow they got matched up in a series together, they won't because it's four and seven and they're not going to get matched up. Blazers, I don't think are going to get to the fifth seed. You might pick Portland in a seven game series over the Clippers, and that's weird. So, I don't expect them to. I don't expect them to drop out of the playoffs. That's for sure. Do they have a chance against any of those? Especially not against the first two teams. No. They they have Golden State and San Antonio are both having historic seasons. So absolutely not. I mean, let, let, let's let's be realistic about it. Uh, 
the the team is is great, but they're not going not in a seven game playoff series. Are they? I don't think they're probably going to be able to beat Thunder in a seven game series. Uh, Memphis doesn't look very tough anymore. So hell, they could they could be five and play the Clippers and get to the second round. That that would be fine with me. It would still certainly be fun seeing Dame and Steph go head to head, though. That's for sure. Yeah, I, it would be. You say that, but then I think back to Damian going against Tony Parker in the playoffs, and that 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 was really hard. I covered that series for SB Nation, and I remember being in practice and asking what I thought was a fairly innocuous question. And this is also a series in where Lillard is sort of getting beat up a little bit by the Spurs. Like they're, I think they were, they might have been not necessarily blitzing picks, but. They were trapping him kind of high and taking the ball out of his hands early. And so I remember asking him something that I thought was kind of innocuous was, you're playing against Tony Parker. He's a Hall of Famer. You realize that. Uh, but and you're the kind of guy who likes to add things to his game, not just during the offseason, but at all times. So what are you taking away from him every night that maybe you can then use against him? And then he basically looked at me and like I was crazy and told me, he's like, Oh, we're completely different players, and I'm not doing that, and I don't care about him, and he doesn't matter. It's that chip <laughs> on his shoulder. You're one of the doubters, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has no idea who I am. He just hates me. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it was it was weird. So I, I don't I don't know that that would be because I feel like Golden State would essentially defensively game plan for him and totally piss him off. So uh, I I would hope it would be fun on paper, but I don't think the Warriors would sort of let him do what he did to them the other night. Right. Over the last 18 games, the defensive turnaround has been amazing as well. During that stretch, the Blazers ranked 7th in defensive efficiency. Prior to that, they were ranking 24th. How have the Blazers been able to pull off such a a turnaround? And also, I'm curious whether Lillard and McCollum are actually as hapless on defense as conventional wisdom suggests. Yeah, they really screwed me on that one because I released a video uh, for Blazers Edge and SB Nation blog about their defensive struggles up to that point. And that was right around the time that they sort of <laughs> flipped the switch and, and turned themselves into a, uh, a not not bad defensive team. In terms of what, what they had been doing wrong before, it's to me it was really related to a lot of what we were talking about on offense, which is getting used to playing with each other. Every NBA player who's been in the league for a couple of years understands basic concepts of defense. That's That doesn't change. And as cliche as it sounds, it comes up to execution. And so within the defensive system they were running, they need to be able to execute better. Now, that also helps when you have players like Alan Crabb coming out stronger and you know uh, a guy who's a, a defensive guy like Gerald Henderson coming into the rotation. So, I mean, even Mo Harkless lately has been playing pretty good defense on guys or at least helping out as part of the team. So... What they're doing differently, I think it's, it, to me, it seems like they've shored up a couple of their sort of, you know, nagging issues on defense, and they've had more time to understand who's going to do what where, who may get beat when he's going on the left side so he needs to sag harder, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, the, the Blazers were not a bad defensive team last year. I think people kind of forget about that. And that's not all up to the fact that you have good defensive players like Wes Matthews and Robin Lopez on that team, right? It's up to Terry Stotts and the coaching staff to game plan around that. And again, you, you can use your um, your personnel the right way and the wrong way on both offense and defense, and they're doing it right. Now, in terms of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, it's tough. I think 
Lillard, to me, has come along a little bit better, especially in terms of his pick-and-roll coverage. He he knows he knows more tricks. That, that's what I would say. He he isn't he is he's engaged, and he knows more tricks about you know. I said this two years ago about him, but he's totally stolen the whole oh I totally got fouled by a moving pick type of thing uh, when he did you know like he bounces off some guy's hip and gets you know, gets a call for him. Even little things like that or t- tugs in the jerseys. That kind of stuff. I see CJ doing that a lot, although maybe that's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> I uh, so I don't think they're necessarily hapless, but when it comes down to whether or not you're winning games and whether or not your defense can improve, that's the whole knock against this team, right? Oh, you can't play those two guys together. Those two guys can't cover anybody. That team's never going to be good enough on defense to make it anywhere in the playoffs. Well, they're proving us wrong about that, and that's up to you know their continued time together, their continued slow growth on the defensive side of the ball and the strategy by the coaching staff. So if they had a couple more guys, which I think they will, uh, that helps them out on defense uh, this summer, look out, because then you have to, you have to go against CJ and Damian on offense every night, and if the team's good on defense, ugh. Yeah, we've talked about how Portland has been an elite offensive team through this stretch, and also that their defensive efficiency has improved as well. What would you say right now is still their biggest weakness for this team and how they've been able to mitigate the effect of that during the hot streak that they're on right now? I think the biggest problem they had is a little more, it's more ethereal than that. And it's, it's, uh, when they're up, which they haven't found themselves in that often this year, but they have recently. When they're up, they let teams back into it. Now, they played a game against Brooklyn last night when we were recording this that they basically, sh- I mean, Brooklyn is terrible, and they should have smashed them. And they had to fight until the final six minutes or something of that game. Or even, you know, against Utah, they were losing to Utah until the fourth quarter of that game, I think. So consistency is still an issue for them over the course of a game. Now, where they've gotten a lot better is closing. The first, somebody tweeted this the other day, but if, if the Blazers had played that game against uh, Utah um, in December, they would have lost, which is absolutely true. They they farted away too many games at the end of the game um, in the first two months of the season. So I think where, where they've really gotten better is staying consistent and uh, making sure that they know not to let teams back into the game. That still happens, and I think that's probably their their biggest weakness. Um, but, you know, they're not they're not a front running team. They're, they're the chip on. I mean, they're led by the guy with the biggest chip on his shoulder ever. And so that's, that's the kind of guy who wants to come out. You know make it Lillard time and score the buck at the end of the game. So they, they have to be better about that. And you've talked a lot about how Terry Stotts has gotten everyone on this team to buy into their role, and also more importantly in my mind, how he's tailored his own system to fit the personnel that he has. Damian Lillard has been really outspoken about his loyalty to Terry Stotts. He has the quote, as long as I'm here, I would like him to be here. How important do you think it is to have the leader of your team and the coach be on such good terms, be on the same page for a franchise? It's crucial. I mean, if we look at somebody like the San Antonio Spurs and, you know, Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich, obviously having that, that lifelong connection that they're going to have well after their, their playing and coaching days are over, that's obviously a huge benefit. And, you know, we see teams like Sacramento just absolutely, you know, I've seen some, some Kings, Kings writers. Just wondering if they're just pissing away the best years of Boogie's or the the beginning of, of Boogie's prime on you know just sort of piddling around with whatever they're going to do with their coaching situation. So it's absolutely crucial. It's a great thing. It's totally a 
Damian Lillard thing to say that. It's definitely Terry Stotts. Terry Stotts is such a laid back guy. He's he's really funny because you see photos of him, press photos, hanging out at uh, practice, whatever he's doing, and he's got the goofiest smile. And then in games, he's always frowning, and and not not you're not yelling and mad, but frowning. And it's like the funniest it's the funniest sort of dichotomy of of a, of a personality. But uh, it, it, Terry Stotts is, is a laid back guy and a nice guy, and Damian Lillard is extremely loyal, and I think that sort of resonates throughout the, the organization. And that's 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 how Blazers fans are too. Blazers fans are, you know, Blazers fans still love Luke Babbitt, Craig Smith, and you know all these all these dudes. I mean, shit. My favorite player from from a kid was Brian Grant. Only here for a couple, couple of years, years, you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that's that's just that's just how Portland attaches to it and kind of kind of runs through the franchise. So it's obvi- it's obviously great for performance. As Joshua and I know as Clipper fans, we just we like the most random old Clippers like Lamont Murray and Terry DeHair. <laughs> we can definitely identify. Yeah, exactly. Pooh yeah, exactly. Richardson. And we talked before about how the Blazers lost four starters from last season, but the big loss from there is Lamarcus Aldridge, former franchise cornerstone. But maybe there's a little bit of a silver lining there. You, we talked a bit before about how it's allowed Damian Lillard to really be the unquestioned leader of this team. Also, it sort of na- matches up the primes of the core of this team a little bit more. Aldridge was quite a bit older than the rest of the key players on the Blazers. So obviously the team doesn't like to lose a player of the caliber of Marcus Aldridge, but do you think there is that silver lining going forward, projecting into the future? Yeah, I think whether people in Portland realize it or not, the team is not better without Marcus Aldridge. That's that's nothing that can be, at least not in terms of on-court performance. Now, if you're talking about the sort of toxic relationship that Marcus brought, not only to his teammates, but sort of how he was perceived through the franchise and with players. You know, LaMarcus sort of had that that struggle his whole career, where he came in, he was behind Zach Randolph, then Brandon Hoy <laughs> emerged and became the player that everybody, you know, liked better, which is made sense because, you know, LaMarcus always wanted to be the top dog, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the personality. He's not a, I don't think he's a bad guy, but that's obviously something that's sort of been a struggle with him. And then you have Lillard come in, who's immediately, I mean, he's the rookie of the year. He's tough. He's got, you know, the personality. He, you know, Damien loves fans, all that kind of stuff. He's rapping. I mean, he's on uh, NBA commercials, not just local commercials selling, you know, at Carpet Carl's Warehouse and Standard TV and Appliance here in Portland. He's, he's, <laughs> you know, he's, 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 he's on, he's on national TV commercials and, um, it's just t- it was tough for Marcus, I think, to do that, and that that is sort of the the, the underpinning of why the Marcus I think partially wanted to leave, and also that's the silver lining. Is that if he's going to leave, then you don't have that kind of toxic atmosphere, which you know people I don't think fans realize, but that exists all over the NBA for stars who have played together for years. I mean, those those frictions exist everywhere, and whether they're they can uh, continue to be successful. While those exist or not, so you know sometimes it goes both ways, and I'm sure the Blazers could have still been successful with both of those players here in Portland. Now is now that he's gone, that's great. It's Damien's team, and you have guys that and you have guys that are smart enough in Neil O'Shea and Terry Stotts to not only be loyal to Damien, but also say, okay, now we know who's our franchise cornerstone. We don't have to plan around anybody else, and so now we're going to try to put pieces around 
this guy. This guy doesn't work with him or doesn't like him. We're not going to bring him in or we're going to get rid of him. Dane, it was a real pleasure talking to you. You gave so much insight on this Portland team that you called the weirdest team in the NBA. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.